Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Padraigotuma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast and we love it. We have three stories for you on this podcast. Beautiful stories of love and death. Ever since he had been admitted to the institution, I'd been trying to impress on the staff that Marvin wished to die at home. I think you've had enough. Am I right? I ask quietly. And she nods. But also a beautifully funny story of embarrassment from the archives. Stopping at the feet of a disgusted looking elderly gentleman. You, my son, are a disgrace to Her Majesty's Navy. (laughs) So let's get cracking. Our first two stories were told in January when the theme was at home. They both deal with the idea of dying at home. So please be prepared. But they're very different, yet equally brilliant. In a few minutes, you'll hear Gita Meaton, who joined us via Zoom from Scotland. But first up, we have 10 by 9 regular, Richard O'Leary. In my childhood home lived my grandmother. In all the time I knew her, she lived in a bed. She was very old and had long white hair. And she would call me into her room, draw me close and say to me, give me a kiss and I'll give you a silver mint. I must confess the five-year-old me didn't really like being kissed, at least not by a very old lady with long white hair. But I did like silver mints which was the most popular brand of white mint sweet. Ever since that time, mint sweets have made, for me, have become associated with kisses and dying. Over a period of months, I sucked my grandmother's packets of mints. But in March 1969, my supply of mints dried up. That was when my grandmother died. She died at home in her own bed. And so that was my childhood experience of dying, that people died at home, cared for by their loved ones. Over the decades of my life, the tradition of the sick and the elderly dying at home became increasingly uncommon. I knew that it wasn't always possible or suitable or even what some of the dying themselves wished for. But it wasn't a subject I thought much about. Until one day, my partner turned to me and said, when I die, I'd like to die at home. A few years after that conversation, our lives changed when my partner Mervyn, he became terminally ill. Later, there was a particular day. It was the 31st of July, 2013. Mervyn had been admitted to an institution for end-of-life care. I'm at his bedside. I've been told that he's only a couple of days to live. Mervyn drifts in and out of consciousness. I keep vigil, interrupting the long hours by every so often placing a gentle kiss on his sweaty forehead and sucking my way through packets of mints. 
In one of his conscious moments, Marvin whispers in my ear, I wish to die at home. I already knew this. Ever since he had been admitted to the institution, I'd been trying to impress on the staff that Marvin wished to die at home. Eventually, they understood. I step out of the room and again ask the nurse about it. The nurse replies, the ambulance is booked for this afternoon between 2 and 5 p.m. Returning to Marvin's bed, I say to him, you'll be home soon. We wait for the ambulance. Marvin stretched out on the bed, me by his side. I tell him, not long now. By half past four, the ambulance has not arrived. I inquire at the nurse's desk. And again at five o'clock, the planned discharge time has now passed. A nurse phones the ambulance service. An estimated time of arrival cannot be provided. At half past six, stepping out of Mervyn's room, I inform a doctor of our situation. He replies that this is not his responsibility. By seven o'clock, I tell a nurse that there's a danger that Mervyn might die there in the institution, rather than in his own home, contrary to his wish. At a quarter past eight, a nurse informs me that the ambulance has arrived. Mervyn is very weak. The nurse injects him with more morphine to ease the pain. The nurse, the ambulance driver, his colleague and I, the four of us, we use a handheld stretcher to move Mervyn from the bed to a trolley. Then we wheel him slowly down the long gray corridor through the wide glass doors of the main exit and into the ambulance. The ambulance drives very slowly towards our home on the outskirts of Belfast. By half past nine, the ambulance arrives at our house and parks on the public footpath. I tell Mervyn that we are outside our house, our home from which I am now speaking to you. The ambulance men tell me that they cannot proceed. We will have to wait in the back of the ambulance for however long it takes until two additional ambulance crew can be sourced as they are needed to carry Mervyn on a stretcher. In the meantime, my friend Terry arrives to be with me. It's warm in the back of the ambulance and Mervyn indicates to me to open the ambulance door. The summer evening's gentle breeze sweeps through the back of the ambulance. The minutes pass. I'm worried that Mervyn might die there outside our house in the back of an ambulance. Mervyn gestures that he needs to urinate. Taking a plastic urine container, 
I press it against his lower naked body. We wait for the trickle. While outside on the footpath, under the streetlight, Terry uses an umbrella to shield Mervyn from public view. By a quarter past 10, a second ambulance crew arrives. The now four-person ambulance crew carry Mervyn on a stretcher from the ambulance through the front door of this house, down the corridor and into our bedroom. They carefully lay Mervyn on the bed. He is still alive. 44 hours later, Mervyn died peacefully. He achieved his wish to die at home. Most people I care for tell me that they'd like to be at home when the end of things comes. And it makes perfect sense, of course, because at home is where we get to rest. It's the place that smells familiar and it feels right, where we kick off our shoes and we toss our car keys into that basket on the hall table without even looking. And it's a part of my job that's often both heartbreaking and heartbreakingly beautiful at the same time. So this particular story is absolutely true but it's also absolutely non-specific so that I can keep safe the individual sacred moments I've known with my patients. And these are the moments that have written themselves deeply into my own story of being with people in their last days at home on the threshold of whatever comes next. So I take a minute or two in the car outside the house, making a show of reading the notes in case anyone's watching out of the window, but I'm not really reading anything. But an end of life visit is so weighty that I need a few deep breaths to steady myself to shoulder that heaviness. I'm praying quickly for strength and kindness and wisdom and clarity. I head up to the front door where I'm met by a crowd, husband, children, a grandchild hiding between his mum's legs. And the house is beautiful, paintings and books telling of their life together, but I'm not here to admire the art collection. Her putty-coloured metal hospital bed is jarring in the centre of the living room, raised up so that we're almost shoulder to shoulder. And one of the daughters sits on the sofa, knitting needles in hands, their soft clicks marking time. I lay a hand on her arm and say her name, and she swims up into consciousness. Cancer has spread through her, its origin in one of those glorious childhood summers of peeling red noses and shoulders, before anybody cared about sunscreen. And the surgeons thought they got all the rogue cells when they cut out the dark circle of skin, but they were only hiding for a wee while, waiting for some mysterious shift in her body to allow a malevolent comeback. And she was so pale by then, the sunburnt girl turning cartwheels on the beach long forgotten. I bend to take her fragile hand, bruised from my failed attempts at taking blood, and will her to find my eyes as she surfaces, to trust that I can hold the space for her pain. How are you today? I ask, the question hollow and inadequate, and she nods slowly, answering not too bad, her voice a faraway echo. It's so strange how people still try so hard to be polite. But I sense a change in her since my last visit. She is so ready for this to be over. And the daughters and her husband are all in the room with us. 
And they're drowning in endless waves of grief and helplessness and desperate for her to be free of pain and in no way ready to let her go. But there's something in her eyes today that I can't ignore. Would you all mind waiting outside for a little moment while I chat with her? And they look a bit taken aback, but they shuffle out, her husband casting a worried glance over his shoulder as he pulls the door closed behind him. How are you really? And she closes her eyes again and tears start to gather on the line of her lashes and her hand feels like cool paper in mine. I think you've had enough. Am I right? I ask quietly. And she nods and the tears spill then, gathering on her jaw like rain on a leaf edge and I wipe them gently with the side of my hand. There comes a point when someone nears the end of things, when the medication becomes too hard to swallow or can no longer keep up with the symptoms. And then we switch to a syringe pump so that the peace bringing medication can go slowly underneath the skin. And we talked about it before and she knew that with the pump, she wouldn't long be present with her loved ones, but rather be drifting in and out of dreams. Do you feel it's time? And again, one dip of her chin for yes. And we both know what she's saying, that she's ready to be untethered from her body ravaged as it was by disease, to let go of this world, of her children, of her husband of 30 years. And I hold her hand a little longer in silence because there's nothing else to be said, nothing that doesn't feel trite and useless. And eventually her tears slow and she seems to rest, the drawn lines of her face softening like a child drifting back to sleep in your arms after a nightmare. It was time. And for the doctor, there's a great and gear change now from those tender human moments to working out dosages and numbers of vials and making sure there's enough of everything, completing the paperwork. And you compartmentalise as much as you can, saving your own tears till you're back in the car, aware that your own sadness will distract you from the job you have to do and that your sorrow is just a faint shadow of what they're all going through. And besides this half an hour till afternoon clinic starts and you can't go into that with red eyes and smudged mascara. I visit daily after that, checking the doses of morphine and midazolam are just right too much and she could become toxic and agitated and sick rather than at ease or not enough so that she's still in pain and still frightened. And this is my awful privilege to do my best to ease her into whatever comes next with some grace and dignity. And the last image I have of her at home is one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. I walk in past her coat and shoes hanging in the entry to that high ceiling room and the light streaming in through the big bay window with shadows of leaves dancing on the wall behind her bed. One daughter's resting on the couch with that sleeping toddler in her arms. The other's knitting again, a moss green scarf calling, coiling to one side of her. And her husband of all those years was in the armchair to the left of the hospital bed reading aloud. It felt like the best kind of Sunday afternoon, peaceful, everyone content and gentle. And at the centre she slept, hands by her sides over the blanket, cheekbones high and sharp, like the lines of a carved medieval saint on a tomb. And I felt as though I stood in the thin place between one world and the next, hesitant to disturb the holiness I'd walked into. Her husband's voice was tender and steady, as though reading a bedtime story to a child. And as I hesitated in the doorway, I realised that he's reading to her from her own diaries. 
a stack of red and black hardback notebooks on the side table. And in those last days and hours, as she sailed far away from him, he was telling her the story of the ordinary collection of small moments that had made them home to one another for so long, telling her story of a life well lived. And I hold on to hope that wherever her mind was drifting by then, she could hear his familiar voice reminding her that she was safe at home and that somehow now she always would be. Oh, thank you both so much. So beautiful and touching. Thank you, Gita and Richard. And if you'd like to see Gita and Richard telling their stories, go to our YouTube channel. Practically all our Zoom stories are there in bite-sized chunks going right back to April 2020. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our costs and keep us going. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. Equally, you can make a donation via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. But the best way to support us is to just keep listening. Thank you. Okay, on to our final story now, and it's from the archives, 2019 in fact, when we had no idea what was in store. It was our comedy night in the black box. A few pointers for overseas listeners. You might want to Google or go to YouTube to see what It's a Knockout was, because it was European madness. Also, there's a tiny bit of distortion from the microphone, but it clears up pretty quickly. Anyway, you won't miss a word of Campbell Killick. It was a hot summer night, and I was standing outside the bus depot in Newtonards, trying to look inconspicuous. I wasn't doing a good job, because even at the age of 15, I was six foot two, and I was dressed as a sailor. This isn't where I wanted to be. I wanted to be at home, in our living room, watching TV. As a teenager, I wasn't good at much, but I was good at watching TV. I was very good at it. With only three channels, but I eagerly consumed everything that they served up. In fact, on one famous Saturday viewing, I managed to spend the entire day watching television from the very first program until a little white dot disappeared at the end of the broadcast. And when they played the national anthem at the end, I like to think it was in recognition of my achievement. (laughs) Unusually, my parents felt my time could be better spent in something more physical, more social, more enriching. When I was in primary school, they signed me up for the junior section of the boys' brigade. This was a disaster because it turned out I was the only Protestant in Ulster who was congenitally incapable of marching. (laughs) And for a spell, I was back in front of the beautiful telly. But to give my parents credit, they were persistent and it wasn't long before my father announced that I had been enrolled in the Friday night meetings of the Sixth Ard Sea Scouts. I immediately saw the flaws in this arrangement. The Sixth Ard Sea Scouts were in Newtonards. We didn't live in Newtonards. But more importantly, the meetings were on a Friday night. Friday nights was the Muppet Show. Friday nights was Starsky and Hutch. For goodness sake, Friday nights were it's a knockout. But all my arguments 
fell on deaf ears. And the very next Friday, I was in the back of my parents' car heading towards Newtonards. For those of you who don't know, Sea Scouts are just like ordinary Scouts, but they like to dress as sailors. <laughs> they're not to be confused with Sea Cadets, who like to dress as sailors, but they're not Scouts. The black shoes, the grey trousers, the blue jumper and the leather belt are all set off with a little white hat. <laughs> now maybe it was a uniform or maybe it was the lack of marching, but as the weeks went by, I started to enjoy Sixthard Sea Scouts. At the same time, my family started to regret the travel arrangements that were required. And that's why you find me on a warm Friday night waiting for the last bus to arrive and trying to fade into the background. I heard them before I saw them. Three loud, laughing, squealing young women came round the corner. Three amigos looking for excitement in Newtonards. <laughs> and in my heart, I knew they would be getting the banger bus. Sure enough, when the bus arrived, they clambered aboard and headed for the back seats. At the last minute, I nipped on and found a seat near the front, hoping I wouldn't be noticed. I slouched down as far as I could manage, my knees pressed against the back of the seat in front, and I tried to get my head and my hat out of view. But I was noticed, and even before we left the depot, the first one piped up. Hey, sailor. <laughs> Hey, sailor, how would you like to come over here and shiver my timbers? <laughs> Fair play to her, it was quite funny. The amigos howled and the passengers around me smiled. This was made worse by my, more funny by my obvious discomfort. We all knew there was more to come and it didn't take long. As we started up the hill out of Newton Arge towards Bangor, hey sailor, this was amigo number two, hey sailor, do you want me to come over there and hoist your mainsail? <laughs> this raised the bar of the maritime metaphor and people around me laughed out loud. There were tears rolling down the cheeks of the three amigos, and I even saw the driver smirk in the rearview mirror. <laughs> and so we, all, so we all waited for the contribution of the third amigo. But there was something wrong. It didn't come. These were the days before iPhones, and this kind of banter required native wit, and clearly she was struggling. <laughs> We were almost in Colrain, no, almost in Conlig. <laughs> we were almost in Conlig by the time it finally came. Hey, sailor. It was loud. We were passing the end of the green road where Eddie Irvine lived. It was so loud that Eddie Irvine might have heard it. <laughs> and he might have been annoyed at the interruption as he and his family watched It's a Knockout. <laughs> hey, sailor. How would you like to put a shot across my broadside? 
there was silence. The disappointment on the bus was palpable. The remark had managed to be entirely nonsensical and at the same time profoundly disturbing. It had the remarkable effect of silencing the three amigos and other passengers went back to their own conversations. I was lulled into an uneasy sleep, thinking that my humiliation was over. But it wasn't. I woke up at the depot and the bus was almost empty. When I leapt to my feet, my legs buckled under me because my knees had been resting on the chrome bar of the seat in front for 30 minutes and no blood had got to my lower limbs. So it was my, on my elbows and my knees that I stumbled to the front of the bus, stopping at the feet of a disgusted-looking elderly gentleman. You, my son, are a disgrace to Her Majesty's Navy. Now, by this stage, I was aware I had disappointed many people, but never had I imagined that I could cause distress to the sovereign ruler of Great Britain, <laughs> that very personification of dignity and decorum as she sat in Buckingham Palace with Philip, watching its a knockout. And I knew how the comical It's a Knockout characters must feel as I fell down the steps and stumbled away from public view. I found a railing to support me. Stamp, stamp, stampity stamp. I tried to get the persuade, I tried to persuade the blood back into my legs. Stamp, stamp, stampity stamp. As I did so, the numbness was replaced by excruciating pins and needles. Stamp, stamp, stampity stamp. A mother and child coming along the footpath looked concerned. Stamp, stamp, stampity stamp. Mummy, what's that strange man doing? Stamp, stamp, stampity stamp. I don't know, dear. I think it's a hornpipe. Oh, thanks, Campbell. Shiver my timbers indeed. And that is it from the podcast for now. Check out all our upcoming events at our website, 10by9.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to Richard, Gita, and Campbell. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye. <laughs>